right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So last um, last week we were in Second uh, Samuel, just like we're going to be in this week, Second uh, Samuel, and um, we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba. Do I sound kind of strange? In the, no. can you hear me okay? Thank you for saying no so quickly. Um, I realize that probably wasn't the best question uh, to ask uh, to, to such a, a group uh, who, who may be overly honest. So thank you for that. Um, grace is always uh, in style. So we were, uh, we were looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, I'm going to touch on that a little bit today, but also use it <clears throat> excuse me, as a launching point uh, for something else to... I think it gives us an opportunity to actually talk, talk a little theology, um, to talk a little um, uh, continuity of the Bible, and uh, that's what we're going to do. In 1994, there was uh, an incident where a white Ford Bronco was seen from above by a helicopter. A hundred million people watched this Ford Bronco as it made a rather slow path um, just in front of uh, a number of police officers. How many people watched that Ford Bronco as it was riding along the interstate? Quite a few. Uh, Those of you younger than me may not know. this was uh, O.J. Simpson being driven uh, along the interstate in, in some sort of uh, slow parade uh, that I guess wasn't really an escape attempt, but was certainly odd. And it led to what some people call the trial of the century, where O.J. Simpson was uh, put on trial for the murders of um, his wife and a friend. So the question, was O.J. Simpson guilty? So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Actually, let's go back to chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Some commentators think that this phrase, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, was a little bit of a dig at David because he was a king and he was not going out to battle. I thought that was interesting. So Joab and his servants went, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. I also found it interesting that Rabbah is uh, the current capital of Jordan, which is called Ammon. The Ammonites lived in the area where the capital of which is today called Ammon. I thought that was interesting. So Rabbah was uh, was what we call, now call Ammon Jordan. And uh, it was interesting, uh, if you look at the map, it's about as far as from here to Columbia. 
uh, the difference between Jerusalem and uh, Rabbah or Amman, Jordan. I also thought it was interesting that to get there by car um, in, in today's world, it takes you about four hours because you have to drive a long way to get the ne- to the nearest border crossing uh, where you can actually cross the Jordan River into this other, this other uh, country. In any event, um, there was a fighting going on. And then we have this interlude where we have lots of action words. Uh, David arose, he walked, he saw, he sent, he took, she came, he lay, she returned, she conceived, and then she said, I am pregnant. You kind of catch it all with the verbs, don't you? Just an amazing account um, in literary terms, if, 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 if not in any other. Also something interesting, uh, this Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah the Hittite turned out to be of all of the thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of warriors that David had at his disposal. We found out, we find out late in 2 Samuel that there were 30 mighty men of David who were his, his chief warriors. Guess who was among the 30? Uriah the Hittite. We also find that Bathsheba so happens to have been the granddaughter of who we'll see in a chapter or two, David's main advisor. So this just shows that, you know, when when there's just raw sin and lust, none of those other things of decorum were powerful enough to keep him from satisfying that lust. We hear from Nathan in chapter 12, where he goes to confront David. We have this story of the the poor man who had essentially a pet lamb who ate from his table and drank from his cup and, you know, in modern day terms, got up on the couch with him and hung out. And the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and, and then as... As David um, says, this is horrible. This man's worthy of death. And then in verse 7, it says, David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I, you know, a little reminder, David, just in case you forget who you really are and where you came from. You know, just remember you were the youngest of the sons. You didn't even get called up when they were looking for a king. You were out in the pastures. And then we're going to see these I statements. I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. A little little moment of clarity here for David. 
Because ultimately, when we're involved with sin, we, we literally forget who we are, right? We, we think we're our own as Christians, certainly. Um, we're not ours anymore, ourselves anymore. Verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secretly. But I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And all of the, practically all of the remainder of the book is going to be the uh, telling of the reality of when, when this prophecy comes to pass, we're going to see David's household uh, really uh, be devastated by the consequences of his own sin. Then in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Turn to Psalm chapter 51. We know this as the Psalm that shows the the heart of repentance and confession of David after he was confronted with his sin, right? And we 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 know these uh, even if it weren't the little fine print like it is in my Bible and probably is in yours that uh, to the choir master a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him and after he had gone into Bathsheba. In other words, just in case you weren't clear, this is the context of this psalm. And you, as we read through this, think about the the emotional state of David. In contrast to what we read in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, it's, I mean, Joe Friday could have written that. It's all about the facts. It's no, why didn't you go into battle? Why did you do this? Did Bathsheba come willingly? There's a, lots of questions behind the scenes that we don't get. We just get the facts. But here in Psalm 51, we start to get some emotion. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Parenthetically, I'll say, if he didn't know his sin, and if his sin wasn't before him, it was going to be because that's what the prophecy was. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Did he sin just against God? No. But as I forget the attribution, but someone said, until you realize your sin wasn't just another person and wasn't just against this or that, until you realize that ultimately all of your sin is against God, then you probably haven't gotten to the root of your confession. So he's, he's there. 
Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. But you delight in truth and in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So we get this inside scoop, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then interestingly in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is the, we get the idea that this is uh, very uh, proximate to his confession, to the sin that seems very raw and very fresh. Let me turn backward to Psalm 32. Perhaps not as well known for the connection, but Psalm 32 is connected to this same event. Psalm 32 comes after Psalm 51 chronologically. Psalm 32 is where David's had some time to think about it. He's had some time to reflect on it. And we'll see he's now following through on his promise in verse rather in chapter 51 that I'm going to I'm going to teach this now in Psalm 32 he's he's really unpacking his experience and he's really teaching this verse 1 blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered and against whom the Lord counts no iniquity there are three terms for sin there transgression sin and iniquity we're going to see that show up again in verse 5 There are also three terms of, you might say, reconciliation. The transgression is forgiven. The sin is covered. And the iniquity, it's kind of a negative, isn't counted against you. We'll come back to to those two verses. Verse 3, we have... Perhaps an explanation as to why it seems so immediate when Nathan confronted David and David says, I have sinned against the Lord. It almost seems too quick, right? It seems kind of like cheap in some some way. Oh, Oh yeah, you confronted me. Okay, I forgive. I've been caught. But look at what was happening to David during this season before he was confronted. He was already guilty. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He was already feeling the conviction of his actions. And so when, when Nathan confronted him, he he knew he knew he was already feeling that weight the heavy hand of god it says was upon me 
And then look what he did, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will trans- I w- I'm sorry, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So here we have those same three words, sin, transgressions, and iniquity. And in this fashion, as we've seen, that the Hebrew writers often used um, kind of parallel thinking to emphasize things where we might, in today's world, we might hit the bold or the italics or the underline or maybe in days gone by things would have rhymed. So when you see this, this parallel and this repetition, it's the writer highlighting those things to say, hey, notice, notice this symmetry here. Interestingly, it says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The heart change, the purpose that I said, but bef- the heart change was enough for the forgiveness to come. He said, I said, I will. He didn't even have to actually say it. Just he purposed in his mind, I said, I will forgive, or rather, I will confess. He hasn't done it yet. He just, as soon as he made a heart intention to do it, God had already forgiven the iniquity of his sin. Practical advice, he continues, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rest of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So how crazy is it what sin does, right? We sin. We get into trouble. So like Adam, then we hide from God. Whereas here, David appropriately tells us we're supposed to hide from trouble in God. We don't get that right, usually. (laughs) But it says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. There's some natural, I guess it's just our fallen nature still there. But when we're in trouble, we want to hide from God. And here it's when there's trouble, go hide in God. And that's there's a T-shirt in there somewhere. I don't have the wording quite worked out, but it's it's in there somewhere. And then verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. So now it's as if God's talking here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. I've got my eye on you. With my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. In other words, um, God is going to hold us near. God is going to hold us near. It can be with the bit and the bridle, if that's what it takes. But he's saying, don't, don't be like that. 
You ever had a dog that was so well trained you could say heel and the dog would come up and actually come up behind you and if you were talking with someone would just lay down? You ever had that dog? Um, we, we did at one point. We also have a dog now that if you want the dog not to attack the other person with affection, uh, you stand on the leash. Right. so that she can't jump up and express herself. Uh, it's all with wonderful intention, of course, but, but curbed, right, with some force. And that's what God's saying. Uh, I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will counsel you, and I'm watching. And don't be like a horse or a mule. Uh, in other words, stay close to me because you want to. And then what are we supposed to do? Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. Think about what David is describing here. I've sinned. I confessed. God forgave. Does that sound familiar? to us yes that is how we are taught justification works is that the Old Testament way of getting your sin taken care of there's no priest involved here right there's no temple or tabernacle or knife involved there's no blood spattered around this is really weird right this is really a very unusual Old Testament teaching turn over to Romans chapter 4. When do we do Romans then? It's been a minute. A little Romans anatomy, you'll, you'll recall uh, Romans has 16 chapters. The first eight are generally considered uh, theology and the second eight are generally considered application of that theology and we also know that historically Romans was the book that convinced Martin Luther that his Catholic teaching was not correct right um, that it wasn't about stuff you did it was about um, faith Right, um, it was about faith. So, here in chapter four, Paul lays out his argument. In fact, I don't know if yours has a little title, but it, mine says Abraham justified by faith. So we will pick up the argument here. Uh, there's been some preamble in the first three chapters, but in 
verse 1 of chapter 4 of Romans, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We saw in Psalm 32 about this God did not count this against me. So here we have this same accounting term. It was counted, or some translations might say imputed. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages, I'm sorry, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is building up the argument that it's not stuff we do that makes us righteous. It's our faith that is counted to us as righteousness. And of all the Old Testament, he picks a verse regarding Abraham, and then he picks a verse from David. And guess which ones he uses? You'll recognize these. Just as David, this is verse 6, as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Of all the passages that Paul could have used to help make his point that it's not about the stuff you did, it's about the faith that you have in God's forgiveness, that's what matters. And so he pulled an example from the patriarchs, and then he pulled an example from history in the Psalms in the person of David to make his point Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the heart of what we call justification. Justification is a legal term. It says, not guilty. I don't know if it's still up here. I guess we took our copies home, but you may have seen laying around here a book about this thick called Systematic Theology uh, by Wayne Group. Pastor Bobby put a copy of that in the hands of every Sunday school teacher. Why do you think he would do that? 
because doctrine is important, right? It's these are the things that really matter. And it's in a systematic way. Now, if anyone wants to borrow my copy, I have it on computer form. And I, I have his copy, and then I have another copy. It's actually not that hard to read. Who is it? Uh, this one was written by Wayne Grudem. Originally published in 94, and, and this was the updated edition from um, 2000. Uh, right now, I have two things on my back seat. I have three bags of uh, quickcrete, concrete, um, and I have a copy of the theology book. I'm not sure what those two things have to do with each other, uh, but if you looked in my, uh, the back of my car, um, that's what you would see. Uh, in that book, there's a diagram of what justification looks like. And on one side, you see a circle full of negative signs. And then alongside it, you just see a circle that's empty. Part of justification is where all of the negative things about us are now removed. And that circle doesn't have all those negatives, it's empty. The second part of justification, so we've gone from morally sinful to morally neutral. A few paragraphs later, there's another diagram with a clear circle and next to it, a circle full of positive signs. The second part of justification is where we're moved from being morally neutral to being morally righteous. So not only are our sins not counted or imputed to us as they should be, and not only is that removed as it is, but God goes even further and says, you know what? I'm going to take the righteousness that is Christ's and I'm going to count that for you. And so you are now in this circle with all those positives. That is justification. That is how we are made right with God. So we understand it from a heart standpoint because we've asked for forgiveness of our sin and as it's often explained from um, the evangelist point of view, you know, ask Christ to come into your heart and forgive you and, and to cleanse you and, and all that happens. But from the theology point of view, Paul's trying to make the point here our sins are not counted against us. Rather, Christ's righteousness is counted for us. With respect to the two murders in California, O.J. Simpson was not guilty. Because 
the court said not guilty. Legally, not guilty. And was treated from that point forward regarding that crime as not guilty. The gospel is so much more than that because it's not guilty for what we have done, for stuff I've probably done today, and for anything I'm going to do. How crazy is that? Grace does not make sense. You, you mean I'm forgiven for stuff I'm going to do? The bad stuff I'm going to do when I should have known better? Yep. Because God says so. And this is the judicial framework, you might say. This is the behind the scenes theologically of what happens when we become Christians. All right, so I hope that wasn't too much of a stretch, but it kind of connects, right? It kind of connects. All right, let me pause there and see, are there any questions or comments? Because there may well be. We have to be careful because we know that. We have to be careful that we don't use that to sin. I don't know if you heard her, but she says, we know that, but we need to be careful and not use that as an excuse for sin. Because we know we'll be forgiven. Because we know we'll be forgiven. Does anybody know where that topic's covered? It's Romans 6, two pages over. <laughs> I think this is excellent point. Verse 1. How shall, see, how shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Yeah. No. And then we have this comment about, you know, we aren't, we're not that person anymore. We've died to sin, right? How shall we live in it? Right? So, the, yes, absolutely. And that's the fear. That's the fear. <clears throat> When, when pastors talk about the amazing grace that we sing about, the amazing grace that we're offered, it's often been said that, um, you know, are we making it too easy? Right? And other people have countered that, that if you make grace sound like an overly good deal, then you've probably done it right. Because it is an overly good deal. What else? You go on to chapter 7. It says, For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm practicing what I like to do, but I'm not doing the very thing I hate. So, Catholics believe that when you're baptized as an infant, that's your first step of justification and you are somehow infused with the 
early elements of um, Christ's nature. And that if you adhere to the teachings of the Catholic Church and if you continue to do good works, then you accumulate more of that. But if you do bad stuff, then you lose some of that so that you never really know if you were good enough to be saved. This is also nicely covered in... Grudem's book, by the way. But Paul still struggled. That's all Romans 7 that Dad's talking about. But because we know, as Martin Luther did, that we're not on some journey toward justification. We are on a journey toward sanctification, another big word we'll talk about another day. the Catholics kind of get it confused a little bit. But we're not on that journey. It was when the gavel falls and we're declared not just not guilty but righteous, that's done. That's over. So, what else? Crazy, right? There's an expression that we use Freedom isn't free, and the same thought applies to grace. That that reminder that it costs Jesus everything is us sinning continually. Exactly. Um, if you didn't hear uh, the concept we use, freedom isn't free, and we know that this grace that sometimes people call cheap grace was absolutely not cheap, right? Uh, bought and paid for by our Savior. Excellent. All right, folks. So, when Pastor Bobby asks, have you all done any theology lately? <laughs> so, by the way, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have loved us with. We thank you that In the mystery of mysteries, you see us as having the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for allowing us to be partakers of that and partakers of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.